Chapter Six of On Secret Service Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six A Matter of Record. What was that you mentioned last week? Something about the record of Chrysler's Drigo Serenade? "'Reminding you of the capture of someone?' I asked Bill Quinn one summer evening, as he painfully hoisted his game leg upon the porch railing. "'Sure it does,' replied Quinn. "'Never fails. Put it on again so I can get the necessary atmosphere, as you writers call it, and possibly I'll spill the yarn, provided you guarantee to keep the ginger ale flowing freely.' That and olive oil are about the only throat lubricants left us. So I slipped on the record, rustled a couple of bottles from the icebox, and settled back comfortably, for when Quinn once started on one of his reminiscences of government detective work, he didn't like to be interrupted. "'That's the piece, all right,' Bill remarked, as the strains of the violin drifted off into the night. Funny how a few notes of music like that could nail a criminal, while at the same time it was saving the lives of nobody knows how many other people. "'Remember Paul Weimer?' continued Quinn, picking up the thread of his story. He was the most dangerous of the entire gang that helped von Bernstorff, von Papen, and the rest of the crew plot against the United States at a time when we were supposed to be entirely neutral.' An Austrian by birth, Weimer was as thoroughly a Hun at heart as anyone who ever served the Hohenzollers, and in spite of his size, he was as slippery as they make him. Back in the past, somewhere he had been a detective in the service of the Atlas Line, but for some years before the war was superintendent of the police attached to the Hamburg American boats. That, of course, gave him the inside track in every bit of deviltry he wanted to be mixed up in, for he had made it his business to cultivate the acquaintance of wharf rats, dive keepers, and all the rest of the scum of the seven seas that haunts the docks. Standing well over six feet, Weimer had a pair of fists that came in mighty handy in a scuffle, and a tongue that could curl itself around all the blasphemies of a dozen languages. There wasn't a waterfront where they didn't hate him. Neither was there a waterfront where they didn't fear him. Of course, when the war broke in August 1914, the Hamburg-American line didn't have any further official use for Weimar. Their ships were tied up in neutral or home ports, and Air Paul was out of a job for at least ten minutes but he was entirely too valuable a man for the German organization to overlook for longer than that, and von Papen, in Washington, immediately added him to his organization, with blanket instructions to go the limit on any dirty work he cared to undertake. Later he worked for von Bernstorff. Dr. Dumba, the Austrian ambassador, and Dr. von Nuber, the Austrian consul in New York, but von Papen had first claim upon his services, and did not hesitate to press them, 
as proven by certain entries in the checkbook of the military attaché during the spring and summer of 1915. Of course, it didn't take the Secret Service and the men from the Department of Justice very long to get on to the fact that Weimar was altogether too close to the German embassy for the safety and comfort of the United States government. But what were they to do about it? We weren't at war then, and you couldn't arrest a man merely because he happened to know von Papen and the rest of his precious companions. You had to have something on him something that would stand up in court, and Paul Weimer was too almighty clever to let that happen. When you remember that it took precisely one year to land this Austrian, one year of constant watching and unceasing espionage, you will see how well he conducted himself. And the government sleuths weren't the only ones who were after him either. Captain Kenny, of the New York Police Force, lent mighty efficient aid and actually invented a new system of trailing in order to find out just what he was up to. In the old days, you told a man to go out and follow a suspect, and that was all there was to it. The shadow would trail along half a block or so in the rear, keeping his man always in view, and bring home a full account of what he had done all day. But you couldn't do that with Weimer. He was too foxy. From what some of the boys have told me, I think he took a positive delight in throwing them off the scent, whether he had anything up his sleeve or not. One day, for example, you could have seen his big bulk swinging nonchalantly up Broadway, as if he didn't have a care in the world. A hundred feet or more behind him was Bob Dugan, one of Kenny's men. When Weimer disappeared into the subway station at Times Square, Dugan was right behind him, and when the Austrian boarded the local for Grand Central Station, Dugan was on the same train, on the same car, in fact. But when they reached the station, things began to happen. Weimer left the local and commenced to stroll up and down the platform, waiting until a local train and an express arrived at the same time. That was his opportunity. He made a step or two forward, as if to board the express, and Dugan, not wishing to make himself too conspicuous, slipped on board just as the doors were closing, only to see Weimer push back and jam his way on the local. Variations of that stunt occurred time after time. Even the detailing of two men to follow him failed in its purpose, for the Austrian would enter a big office building, leap into an express elevator, just as it was about to ascend, slip the operator a dollar to stop at one of the lower floors, and be lost for the day, or until someone picked him up by accident. So Cap Kenny called in four of his best men, and told them that it was essential that Weimer be watched. Two of you, he directed, stick with him all the time. Suppose you locate him the first thing in the morning at his house on 24th Street, for example. You, Cottrell, station yourself two blocks up the street. Gary, you go the same distance down. Then, no matter which way he starts, 
he'll have one of you in front of him and one behind. The man in front will have to use his wits to guess which way he intends to go and to beat him to it. If he boards a car, the man in front can pick him up with the certainty that the other will cover the trail in the rear. In that way, you ought to be able to find out where he is going and possibly what he is doing there. The scheme, thanks to the quick thinking of the men assigned to the job, worked splendidly for months. At least it worked in so far as keeping a watch on Weimer was concerned. But that was all. In the summer of 1915, the government knew precisely where Weimer had been for the past six months, with whom he had talked to, and so on. But the kernel of the nut was missing. There wasn't the least clue to what he had talked about and what deviltry he had planned. Without that information, all the dope the government had was about as useful as a movie to a blind man. Washington was so certain that Weimer had the key to a number of very important developments, among them the first attempts to blow up the Welland Canal, that the chief of the Secret Service made a special trip to New York to talk to Kenny. "'Isn't it possible,' he suggested, "'to plant your men close enough to Weimer to find out, for example, what he talks about over the phone?' Kenny smiled grimly. "'Chief,' he said, "'that's been done. "'We've tapped every phone that Weimer's likely to use "'in the neighborhood of his house, "'and every time he talks from a public station, "'one of our men cuts in from nearby, "'by an arrangement with Central, "'and gets every word. "'But that bird is too wary to be caught "'with chaff of that kind. "'He's evidently worked out a verbal code of some kind "'that changes every day.' He tells the man at the other end, for example, to be at the drug store on the corner of 73rd and Broadway at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon and wait for a phone call in the name of Williams. Our man is always at the place at the appointed hour, but no call ever arrives. 73rd and Broadway very evidently means some other address, but it's useless to try and guess which one. You'd have to have a man at every pay station in town to follow that lead. How about overhearing his directions to the men he meets in the open? Not a chance in the world. His rendezvous are always public places. The Pennsylvania or Grand Central Station, a movie theater, a hotel lobby, or the like. There he can put his back against the wall and make sure no one is listening in. He's on to all the tricks of the trade, and it will take a mighty clever man, or a bunch of them, to nail him. Hmm, huh, mused the chief. Well, at that, I believe I've got the man. Anyone I know? Yes, I think you do. Morton Maxwell. Remember him? Worked on the Castleman Diamond case here a couple of years ago for the customs people and was also responsible for uncovering the men behind the sugar tax fraud. He isn't in the service, but he's working for the Department of Justice, and I'm certain they'll turn him loose on this if I ask them to. 
Maxwell can get to the bottom of Weimer's business if anyone can. Let me talk to Washington. And within an hour after the chief had hung up the receiver, Morton Maxwell, better known as Mort, was headed toward New York with instructions to report at Secret Service headquarters in that city. Once there, the chief and Kenny went over the whole affair with him. Cottrell and Gary and the other men who had been engaged in shadowing the elusive Weimer were called in to tell their part of the story, and every card was laid upon the table. When the conference concluded, sometime after midnight, the chief turned to Maxwell and inquired, "'Well, what's your idea about it?' For a full minute, Mort smoked on in silence and gazed off into space. Men who had just met him were apt to think this a pose, a play to the grandstand, but those who knew him best realized that Maxwell's alert mind was working fastest in such moments, and that he much preferred not to make any decision until he had turned things over in his head. "'There's just one point which doesn't appear to have been covered,' he replied. Then, as Kenny started to cut in, "'No, chief, I said appeared not to have been covered. Very possibly you have all the information on it and forgot to hand it out. Who does this Weimer live with?' "'He lives by himself in a house on 24th Street, near 7th Avenue. Boards there, but has the entire second floor. So far as we've been able to find out, he has never been married.' No trace of any wife on this side, anyhow. Never travels with women, probably afraid they'd talk too much. Has he any relatives? None that I know of. Wait a minute, Cottrell interrupted. I dug back into Weimer's record before the war ended his official connection with the steamship company, and one of the points I picked up was that he had a cousin, a man named George Butch, formerly employed on one of the boats. "'Where is Butch now?' asked Maxwell. "'We haven't been able to locate him,' admitted the police detective. "'Not that we've tried very hard, because the trail didn't lead in his direction. I don't even know that he is in this country, but it's likely that he is, because he was on one of the boats that was interned here when the war broke. Again, it was a full minute before Maxwell spoke. Butch, he said finally, appears to be the only link between Weimer and the outer world. It's barely possible that he knows something, and as we can't afford to overlook any clue, suppose we start work along that line. I'll dig into it myself the first thing in the morning, and I certainly would appreciate any assistance that your men could give me, Chief. Tell them to make discreet inquiries about Butch, his appearance, habits, etc., and to try to find out whether he is on this side. Now I'm going to turn in, for something seems to tell me that the busy season has arrived. At that, Maxwell wasn't far wrong. The weeks that followed were well filled with work, but it was entirely unproductive of results. Weimer was shadowed day and night, his telephones tapped and his mail examined, 
but save for the fact that his connection with the german embassy became increasingly apparent no further evidence was forthcoming the search for butch was evidently futile for that personage appeared to have disappeared from the face of the earth all that maxwell and the other men who worked on the matter could discover was that butch a young austrian whose description they secured had formerly been an intimate of weimar the latter had obtained his appointment to a minor office in the hamburg american line and butch was commonly supposed to be a stool pigeon for the master plotter but right there the trail stopped no one appeared to know whether the austrian was in new york or the united states for that matter though one informant did admit that it was quite probable butch and the big fellow had a row the last time over was the information maxwell secured at the cost of a few drinks something about some money that weimer is supposed to have owed him fifteen dollars or some such amount i didn't hear about it until afterward but it appears to have been a pretty lively scrap while it lasted of course butch didn't have a chance against the big fellow he could handle a bull but the young austrian threatened to tip his hand said he knew a lot of stuff that would be worth a good deal more money than was coming to him and all that sort of thing but the ship docked the next day and i haven't seen or heard of him since the idea of foul play at once leaped into maxwell's mind but investigation of police records failed to disclose the discovery of anything answering to the description of george butch and as captain kenny pointed out it is a decidedly difficult matter to dispose of a corpse in such a way as to not arouse at least the suspicions of the police as a last resort about the middle of september maxwell had a reward posted on the bulletin board of every police station in new york and the surrounding country for the apprehension of george butch austrian age about twenty-four height five feet eight inches hair blonde complexion fair eyes blue sandy mustache as captain kenny pointed out though the description would apply to several thousand men of german parentage in the city and to a good many more who didn't have a drop of teutonic blood in their veins true enough maxwell was forced to admit but we can't afford to overlook a bet even if it is a thousand to one shot as luck would have it the thousand to one shot won on september twenty fifth nineteen seventeen detective gary returned to headquarters distinctly crestfallen weimer had given him the slip in company with another man whom the detective did not know the austrian had been walking up sixth avenue that afternoon when a machine swung in from thirty-sixth street and the austrian had leaped aboard without waiting for it to come to a full stop of course there wasn't a taxi in sight said gary ruefully and before i convinced the nearest chauffeur that my badge wasn't phony they'd gone that's the first time in months gary replied he knows that he's followed all right 
and he's cagey enough to keep in the open and pretend to be above board. Right, commented the Department of Justice operative, and this move would appear to indicate that something was doing. Better phone all your stations to watch out for him, Cap. But nothing more was seen or heard of Air Weimer for five days. Meanwhile, events moved rapidly for Maxwell. On September 26th, the day after the Austrian disappeared, one of the policemen whose beat lay along 14th Street near 3rd Avenue asked to see the government detective. "'My name's Riley,' announced the copper, with a brogue as broad as the toes of his shoes. "'Does this Austrian, this here butch fellow you're looking for, like music? Is he nuts about it?' "'Music?' echoed Maxwell. "'I'm sure I don't know. But wait a minute. Yes, that's what that chap who used to know him on the boat told me.' saying he was forever playing a fiddle when he was off duty, and that Weimer threw it overboard one day in a fit of rage. Why? What's the connection? Nothing in particular, save that a little girl I'm rather sweet on works in a music store on 14th Street, and she and I was talking things over last night, and I happened to mention the reward offered for this butch fellow. Why, says she, that sounds just like the duchy that used to come into the shop a whole lot a year or so ago. He was crazy about music and kept himself pretty nigh broke a buying those expensive new records. Got me to save him every violin one that came out. Um, yes, muttered Maxwell. But has the young lady seen anything of this chap lately? That she has not, Riley replied. And right, there's the big idea. Once a week, regular, another Dutchman comes in and buys a record, and he told Katie, that's my girl's name, last winter that the selections were for a man that used to be a steady customer of hers, but who was now laid up in bed. In bed for over a year? exclaimed Maxwell, his face lighting up. Held prisoner somewhere in the neighborhood of that shop on 14th Street because the big Austrian hasn't the nerve to make away with him and yet fears that he knows too much. Look here, Riley. Suppose you and Miss Katie take a few nights off. I'll substitute for her and make it all right with the man who owns the store. Then I can get a line on this buyer of records for sick men. Won't it be better, sir, if we hung around outside the store and let Katie give us the high sign when he comes in? Then we could both trail him back to where he lives. You're right, Riley, it would. Where'll I meet you tonight? At the corner of 14th Street and Third Avenue at 8 o'clock. Katie says the man never gets there before nine. "'I'll be there,' said Maxwell. And he was. But nothing out of the ordinary rewarded their vigil the first night, nor the second. On the third night, however, just after the clock in the Metropolitan Tower had boomed nine times, a rather nondescript individual sauntered into the music store 
and Riley's quick eyes saw the girl behind the counter put her left hand to her chest. Then she coughed. "'That's the signal, sir,' warned the policeman in a whisper, "'and that's the guy we're after.' Had the man turned around as he made his way toward a dark and forbidding house on 13th Street, not far from 4th Avenue, he might have caught sight of two shadows skulking along not fifty feet behind him. But, at that, he would have to have been pretty quick, for Maxwell was taking no chances on losing his prey, and he had cautioned the policeman not to make a sound. When their quarry ascended the steps of number 247, Riley started to move after him, but the Department of Justice operative halted him. "'There's no hurry,' stated Maxwell. "'He doesn't suspect we're here, and besides, it doesn't make any difference if he does lock the door. I've got a skeleton key handy that's guaranteed to open anything.' Riley grunted but stayed where he was until Maxwell gave the signal to advance. Once inside the door, which responded to a single turn to the key, the policeman and the government agent halted in the pitch-black darkness and listened. Then from an upper floor came the sound for which Maxwell had been waiting, the first golden notes of a violin played by a master hand. The distance and the closed doorway which intervened killed all the harsh mechanical tone of the phonograph, and only the wonderful melody of Drigo's serenade came down to them. On tiptoe, though they knew their movements would be masked by the sounds of the music, Riley and Maxwell crept up the third floor and halted outside the door from which the sounds came. "'Wait until the record is over.' directed Maxwell, and then break down that door. Have your gun handy, and don't hesitate to shoot anyone who tries to injure Bush. I'm certain he's held prisoner here, and it may be that the men who are guarding him have instructions not to let him escape at any cost. Ready? Let's go. The final note of the Chrysler record had not died away before Riley's shoulder hit the flimsy door, and the two detectives were in the room. Maxwell barely had time to catch a glimpse of a pale, wan figure on the bed, and to sense the fact that there were two other men in the room, when there was a shout from Riley and a spurt of flame from his revolver. With a cry, the man nearest the bed dropped his arm, and a pistol clattered to the floor, the barrel still singing from the impact of the policeman's bullet. The second man, realizing that time was precious, leaped straight toward Maxwell, his fingers reaching for the agent's throat. With a half-laugh, Mort clubbed his automatic and brought the butt down with sickening force on his assailant's head. Then he swung around and covered the man whom Riley had disarmed. "'Don't worry about him, sir,' said the policeman. "'His arm will be numb half an hour from now. What do you want to do with the lad in the bed?' "'Get him out of here as quickly as we can. We won't bother with these swine. They have the law on their side anyway, because we broke in here without a warrant. I only want Butch.' 
when he had propped the young Austrian up in a comfortable chair in the federal building and had given him a glass of brandy to strengthen his nerves, the Lord only knows what they'll have to do in the future. Maxwell got the whole story and more than he had dared hoped for. Bush, following his quarrel with Weimer, had been held prisoner in the house on 13th Street for over a year because, as Maxwell had figured, the Austrian didn't have the nerve to kill him and didn't dare let him loose. Barely enough food was allowed to keep him alive, and the only weakness that his cousin had shown was in permitting the purchase of one phonograph record a week in order to cheer him up a little. "'Naturally,' said Butch, "'I chose the Chrysler records because he's an Austrian and a marvelous violinist.' "'Did Weimer ever come to see you?' inquired Maxwell. "'He came in every now and then to taunt me "'and to say that he was going to have me thrown in the river some day soon. "'That didn't frighten me, but there were other things that did. "'He came in last week, for example, "'and boasted that he was going to blow up a big canal, "'and I was afraid he might be caught or killed.' That would have meant no more money for the men who were guarding me, and I was too weak to walk even to the window to call for help. "'A big canal,' Maxwell repeated. "'He couldn't mean the Panama. No, that's impossible. I have it. The Welland Canal.' And in an instant he was calling the Niagara police on the long-distance phone giving a detailed description of Weimer and his companions. "'As it turned out,' concluded Quinn, reaching for his empty glass, "'Weimer had already been looking over the ground. He was arrested, however, before the dynamite could be planted, and, thanks to Butch's evidence, indicted for violation of Section 13 of the Penal Code.' Thus did a phonograph record and thirty pieces of silver, the thirty half-dollars that Weimer owned Butch, lead directly to the arrest of one of the most dangerous spies in the German service. Let's have Mr. Drigo's serenade once more and pledge Mort Maxwell's health in ginger ale, unless you have a still concealed around the house. And if you have... I will be in duty bound to tell Jimmy Reynolds about it. He's the lad that holds the record for persistency and cleverness in discovering moonshiners. End of chapter 6